cool things about uh, doing this podcast is coming across pieces of research that lend themselves to discussions about how they can be applied to minor hockey. Uh, as you found out in the show I did a couple weeks ago with Vic Chasson and Jim Mercer on culture in minor hockey or culture in sports period, uh, started off with a research document from um, a couple of researchers in Ottawa about what successful college coaches did to change the culture in their universities. So I'm dealing with another one here. It's from a Slovakian researcher and coach named Igor Andreovich or Andrejkovic, I think is the pronunciation of his name. It was done in Bratislava in 2009. And the research was actually done a year or two before that. My guest, uh, guest host here on the show, Dean Holden, actually knows Igor. And we are going to discuss on this show called The 90% Factor, the results of a really interesting research paper that looked at what are the significant numbers of players involved in a hockey game and how that affects what we are doing in practice. So Dean, who is, as I'm doing this introduction, is chomping on a little bit of pizza and he's just swallowed the last piece. He's, he's ready to go. Dean, you're ready to go. Just a boat, buddy. Just a boat. <laughs> All right. So uh, you're not sure if I pronounced Igor's last name correctly or not, but hmm. it doesn't matter, does it? Uh, the researcher formerly known as Igor. <laughs> right. Now, what's your connection with him? I met Igor. I met Igor in Quebec City at the World Championships in 2008, I think it was. And I think that's where we met. Anyway, that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Um, as part of, um, I was working for Hockey Canada and, and um, Igor was part of the Slovakian delegation and he's been a long time assistant coach to many of the men's and women's teams of all ages there and, and uh, has been working with the Slovakian Ice Hockey Federation for many years before that. Um, so we got introduced and he, we were sitting around talking about hockey one night and he said, I, I just finished my PhD and I did the research on this and that and he shared shared an early copy of the article with me uh, and that once you do the research it takes a year or two or sometimes longer to get published I know one thing I did back in the day took almost 10 years to get published so um, there's a gap in time but regardless I thought it was a very um, fascinating peek inside the machinery of a typical five on five not counting goalies uh hockey game and what relation it had on practice opportunities and what kind of transfer might exist between game to practice and that whole relationship we're going to break down his paper a little bit because of the impact it could potentially have on what we do in hockey practices, particularly in minor hockey practices. The name of his paper, and I'm not sure if it was translated directly from Slovak or what, but it's relation of solving two-on-two game situation during matches and within training sessions in ice hockey, U18. So he was dealing with, his research was done with U18 kids, the best players, I should say, in Bratislava, in Slovakia. And uh, he, cut, he analyzed 60 games during the regular season using a scale system he came up with. In other words, whether or not an event in a game was successful or unsuccessful. And he came up with a few conclusions. So rather than going through this 10-page this paper and giving everybody you know, how he approached the result, here are the results. And this is why this show is called The 90% Factor. He concluded that 45% of games were 1v1, one against one situations. 35% were two against one situations. We're not identifying whether they were forwards or defense, but we're just saying two against one situations. And another 10% were either two against two or one against two situations. The conclusion being that. 90% of a hockey game or of the 60 games he saw of U18s in Bratislava at that time, that 90% of hockey games are involving 
less than four players. So when we watch games and we watch them critically on TV, which is hard to do, mind you, I find myself now watching NHL games. I'm looking to the left or right behind the puck to see what those other players are doing because the camera is focused on the puck. Uh, that, my gosh, that's true. When you watch the stars today, Kale McCarr, Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, all the great players today, their success is largely built on their ability to win one against one or support in two against one situations. Dean, does that make sense? A hundred percent. And I think, I think the important thing to note here is on a one-on-one, as you're saying this, Kale McCarr could be on offense and beating somebody else on defense. It also means he could be facing somebody on offense and he wins the one-on-one on on defense. You know, it's a constant, um, you know, battle between transition. I'm on offense, I'm on defense, whatever. It's looking at the ability to win your game situation, be it on offense or defense. This is what Igor was looking at. And so a one versus two, even though it's only in within the 10% of that 90%, um, one versus two, I think to clarify, means I have the puck and I'm attacking two defenders. If I can win that, that happens 10% of the time. A two-on-one, if the two offensive players can win that, that's part of the 35% of the time. So it doesn't matter if you're on offense or defense. It's all about how often can you win that. And if these numbers are true, like this is a U18, right? Um, If you can put those numbers out there, extrapolate them to an older more skilled, less skilled age category or younger. Um, Again, it's males, could be gender. I mean, there's lots of things, but if you can extrapolate these numbers to the wider minor hockey ranks out there, I think it's important for coaches to recognize these numbers and potentially what impacts this could have on their practice. When you look at the number of, I mean, you mentioned transitions and we're not talking about forwards or defensemen, we're talking about offensive or attackers and defenders because defenders could be you know a defenseman and a back checking forward right so when we're looking at the number of transitions that occur in a game in an nhl game there could be hundreds i've heard the number anywhere from 300 to 600 transitions puck losses and regains in a game you know that's a lot in a minor hockey game of 45 minutes where the skill level is obviously much lower Uh, There might be a comparable number of transitions, even though the time period is less. So that certainly has to be taken into consideration when we're looking at the impact of, you know, one against one, one against two, two against one situations that occur in a game. The, the, The issue you and I, Dean, have discussed regarding this paper has to do with how he reached his conclusions. What do you have to say about that again? Well, I guess the methodology, um, you know, how, how did he come to these um, numbers? And we've discussed it before, um, other times before we recorded. It's, it's a qualitative study um, as opposed to the uh, videos that Hockey USA put out several years ago. I think they were filmed in Detroit, Joe Lewis, about the age-appropriate sizes of um, Playing surfaces, numbers of players. Do we go cross ice? Do we go half ice? Do we go three quarter ice? Puck touches, passes, success. Touches, passes, shot. Yeah, like all that stuff. And they 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 quantitatively measured that by putting RFID chips on each player so they could measure time on ice, all those sorts of things. And then they had the video footage to to break it down after. Now, my understanding on Igor's study is it wasn't it wasn't like a technology based study with, with that degree. But what Igor did is he had access to video and by going through the game, the games that were recorded, he made a, he made a decision on how do I quantify a, a game situation in a game? And, it, and it, but it was done on a, on a qualitative basis. So it was done on 
the the background of what Igor had at the time and and, and going into that he'd been a long time um, employee of hockey Slovakia and had been involved with coaching hockey for many years and now this was an academic view of a practical situation so I guess in my opinion it kind of um, bridges the gap between the qualitative more qualitative than quantitative but it's that um, a practical to academic side and that's why I find this paper to be potentially so useful it's not just academia it's actually based on what is the reality of the game and in a five-on-five five game how how many players are truly actively involved and as you and I have talked I think that how Igor has broken this down with his methodology is he's looked at the game through the perspective that he brings to the table with his knowledge and he's deciding this play here is a one-on-one. -on -one. Even though there's four or five other players or you know eight other players on the ice if it's five on five, based on that situation, it's truly a one-on-one -on -one because there's there's nobody else that can, you know, likely to be able to be of assistance. So I think he's basing his methodology on kind of time and space and the realities of the actual individual situation of the puck carrier and an opponent. So is that a two-on-one, a one-on-two, a one-on-one, a two-on-two, or anything other? And so I think that's where he's broken his categories down into. I think that if, if let's say you and me and him, Igor, and one other person, we're just sitting in the stands, 10 feet apart, social distancing, 10 feet apart, and look at plays on the ice as they're happening, we would all come up with somewhat different determinations of what constitutes a player potentially engaged in the play around the puck. So you go, you're watching a kid go into a corner and we're talking, let's talk about kids here in minor hockey. So you watch a kid go into the corner to get a puck, a defenseman chases him. Both of those players are obviously engaged. At what point is the defender not engaged? When he's two strides away, two stick lengths away, uh, because the fluidity of the game makes it very difficult to come up with that determination. That's where I think that when we take this statistic of 90% as being one versus one, et cetera, that there's a margin of error here that could be as much as 10, 15%. But even with that, it has a significant impact on what we do in practice, even with a large margin of error. Agreed. And I think, um, you know, it'd be fascinating to replicate the study in the sense of, um, giving a sample size of the same team, um, meaning U18 and or let's look at pro because we can readily access archival games online and look at one team for 20 games, like whatever the, whatever the sample size needs to be to make it um, valid and reliable. Do the same with a U13 team. Do the same with uh, you know a female U13 team. At what level? Like, well, pick a level. Doesn't matter. But it'd be neat to have different data points across yes, very. age, skill level, yep. gender, and but but have the same qualitative analysis. So the same people would have to be running it and and come up with their definition of what is a one-on-one. -on -one. And like you said, it like four people. Well. 80% of the time, we agree this is a one-on-one. -on -one. Well, okay, good. Is it good enough? I don't know. But it would be very interesting to, to have the ability and the time and resources to do replica studies across these different parameters to see, do these numbers hold up? Or, you know, are they pretty close? Like you said, is there gonna, there's probably going to be a degree of difference because we're not Igor and, and, and only he knows his true methodology. But you know what, maybe his methodology has changed based on he's now, you know, he did the study in whatever 2007, eight ish before it got published. And now it's 2022. I'm sure Igor's learned a ton of stuff since and maybe some of his um, qualitative definitions might have changed. It'd be interesting to have him replicate it. Well, we talked about this offline, Aideen, that uh, 
if we look back to how the game was played in the 80s or the 60s, or if we had video of games from the 40s, I don't think there are videos of those games, but if we go back to other eras, without comparing the stars, without saying who, you know, was Gordie Howe the greatest of all time or Gretzky or, or, you know, without getting into all of that, the nature of the game of hockey has basically remained the same. It's still the ability of a player offensively or defensively to win a one against one battle. Some players are better at it than others. Take away, even with the hooking and holding that took place in the previous eras, the 70s and 80s, well, 60s, you know, with the, the bench clearing brawls. We're not talking about that kind of stuff. We're talking about as the game goes down the rink, it's still one against one, one against two, two against one. Pretty much, you know, I mean, you can watch uh, late night um, cable replays of games, you know, playoff games from the 80s, and you go, well, yeah, obviously it's much faster today. The athletes are much better. The, the skill level is much higher. No argument. But the nature of the game is essentially the same. I agree. I think the um, you know rule changes aside, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, you're trying to score and prevent scoring, and Correct. you're in a similar size surface. And you know a lot of the rules are the same. The nets are the same size. Um, you know there's there's a lot of similarities. And at the end of the day, hockey is an invasion sport, and it makes up. A category of games just like you know rugby uh, soccer those sorts of things there's there's similarities with these other sports you know basketball whatever and that doesn't change and this category of games I would say that using Igor's work in hockey with hockey there's going to be even a more direct correlation um, between some of the stuff that he finds and hockey as it's played today in 2022 just like the stuff he did in 07 or 08 right you could also extrapolate it to other sports and it'd be interesting to look sure. at other sports to see if they've done similar studies to igor's because uh, i haven't looked um maybe there's other studies out there and then we could even look to see what their methodologies were what did they find but i think the um you and i have talked about this the the 90 percent factor we're really going to look at, you know, if we both agree that there's some merit behind this study, and, and I think there is, uh, I think there is for many years, because I, when I first met Igor and he explained it to me, I've been kind of delving into this my, on my own side for my own practice, and I've changed my ways of how I practice, keeping these numbers in mind. So on common sense would dictate, if these numbers are close there is a margin of error probably based on age skill level gender whatever methodology but if these numbers are even remotely close should not a coach empower themselves to use these numbers to their advantage to leverage what learning opportunities that they're going to try to create in practice because that's what i've done and i uh, again how do you measure success most people look at external winning versus losing indicators to judge somebody and their success. I think that it goes deeper, it's philosophical, you want to try to teach life lessons through sport. However, it's a competitive game, there's a scoreboard, and ultimately most people judge you on your win-loss record. Minor hockey, yes. Pro, certainly. Right? And I've had nothing but success when I have looked at these numbers and then tried to incorporate that philosophy into my coaching practice using those relative ratios of how often do they occur in a game to how often do I practice those game situations in practice. So 45% of one-on-one, -on -one, half your practice then, to me, I know I'm not a math scholar, but 50% of an hour is 30 minutes. Would I not practice one-on-ones for 30 minutes then in order to you know right. have that uh, those numbers line up with well if, if half the game's one-on-one -on -one, why don't i practice half my practice one-on-one -on -one? and that's what i've done richard and it's been it's been fantastic i've long maintained in my role as you know as a coach educator teacher you know mentor instructor or whatever with either informally with associations or formally with hockey canada 
that when you look at what coaches do in practice, as a general rule, uh, if we eliminate the stuff that really is inappropriate, you know, three on two reverses in the neutral zone, come back three on two, pass to your own defense, you know, all that kind of stuff. If you eliminate the really dumb stuff that has no place in the vast majority of minor hockey practices, arguably all, and when you eliminate that, you force coaches to go, well, if I can't do this or I shouldn't do this, what should I do? Well, as you say, focus one-on-one. Like the ability of kids to beat or defend a one-on-one, and I'm not talking about forward coming in on defenseman in the middle of the rink, and you're going to have to make a move inside. I mean, you know, it could be a one-on-one battle on the boards. It could be a four-checker on a defender. You know, there are all kinds of, of one-on-ones that take place in the rink. Well, I, I come back to, I think I told you the example of when Vicky Sunahara, the coach at University of Toronto, was on the podcast about a year and a half ago. And she was doing a three-on-three uh, small area game uh, between, I think it was between the blue lines. And she stopped her girls. Now, these are, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old young women with 10 years of competitive hockey under their belts. And she said to them, you cannot make a play till you've beaten somebody one-on-one. And they were furious. They did not want to do it. They said, well, coach, what are you making? What are you punishing us for? She said, I'm not punishing you. That's what you need to be able to do in the game. I don't know if she's read the study or not, but just instinctively, she knew, she knew from her playing experience, you need to be able to successfully defend or attack in a one-on-one. So there you go. I wish I was wearing the costume of Captain Obvious, standing on with one foot up <laughs> on a bench, yeah. doing a slow clap right, for right. Captain Morgan's rum. It's a combination of two <laughs> things. Welcome to the wiserhood or brotherhood or whatever. Um, the enlightenment. Um, and, I, and, I, and I remember that podcast, and I remember it, it hit me like a ton of bricks when I listened to it, Richard. It was great. And I, I can't remember if... Vicky termed it that her girls were furious or scared. As I recall, it was like they were they were shocked and they were upset. They, they felt were, they were being punished. They felt threatened. They felt threatened yeah. by the fact mm-hmm. that the coach was holding them accountable to doing a one on one in practice. And I, I I sent that to a couple of my my closest buddies. Um, you know, John the Colombian is one. And um, mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, like his reaction was the same. It was like, oh my god, like this is wonderful to hear another coach trying to hold their players accountable to the realities of the game. you got to win a one-on-one. Like if you, and, you know, one of the later examples that recently happened to me is I had a coach tell the team, I don't know why you guys insist on trying to beat somebody one-on-one. Just dump it in deep. Uh, I, I was like, what? Why? Well, just use your speed drive wide. Like, don't try and take them on one-on-one. Don't try to beat them. And I'm just shocked and I'm going, okay, I understand that this coach is competitive. I understand that their intention, and I'm guessing, it's my perspective, their intention is they want to win. They want to see, they want to see, um, have a positive outcome because then it's going to reflect on them, their players, their team, whatever. I want, I think he's, saying that he wants his players to do well. He doesn't want to see them make mistakes. He doesn't want to see them get embarrassed by turning the puck over anywhere in the rink, but you know, maybe at the opponent's blue line, their own blue, like wherever the one-on-one happens, as you said, it doesn't have to be offensive player or a forward versus a D. It could be a forward against another forward, whatever, it doesn't matter, but offense versus defense. But the thing that I took away from that statement that really cut to my, the heart of me was, I'm the opposite. I encourage my players to attack people one-on-one. And you know what? If you screw up, you screw up. It's knowledge of performance right there for that player. If I try to beat you, Richard, and I can't do it, I don't need to go back to the bench to have a disapproving frown from the coach and to have him harsh me out and sit me on the bench. I know I didn't beat you one-on-one. I have to start to describe in my own mind Define why didn't I beat this guy? Why didn't I beat Richard one-on-one? What did I try and what didn't work? Is it because my stick handling sucks? Is it because I, I quit moving my feet when I try to beat somebody instead of 
moving my feet while I'm trying to stick handle and, and deke and like, like I get feedback based on my successes and failures on one-on-one. As a coach, I encourage that and I play a ton of it in practice because I think it is the key to performing well. You need to win the one-on-one. I'm taking this whole description from the offensive point of view. I could flip it and take it from the defender's point of view. Why didn't that defender beat that offensive player? Right? Like you, you can look at it either way. I'm more of an offensive guy, so my, my default position, I'm always looking at offense first. But you need to look at it from both perspectives. But it comes back to that game situation. We need to encourage this more as coaches. Don't take the easy out, chip it by, dump it in deep, get it, piss on that. You attack that person one-on-one for better or worse, because I don't care about the outcome. I mean, I do, I'm competitive, but in the big picture, I don't. I care about what is that player going to learn in that situation over the course of a season, because if I have that player exposed in training opportunities in these situations as Igor hasn't broken out, the more I can expose players to the realities of what happens in a game, the better they're going to end up doing. And over time, you're going to see each one of your players start to get better and more confident beating people one-on-one. Now, if they have to use the odd chip or whatever here and there, great. But they need to come up with their own ability to solve problems and deal with those game-like realities. And that's what we as coaches should be encouraging in games. And we should be supporting that in our training environment. That's, I mean, that's my philosophy. The uh, one of my early observations of girls hockey now in my second year working with the girls program here in Whitby is that coaches would send again a generalization, but most coaches would send their girls on the ice uh, and for three, four, five minutes in a 50 minute practice, they'd just be skating aimlessly around the rink or the usual, you know, speed up between the blue lines or speed up on the whistle. So I've, I've asked the coaches, I can't order the coaches, but I've certainly strongly suggested uh, give the kids pucks. Yeah. Give the kids pucks uh, and tell them to go play with pucks and practice, you know, toe drags or between the skates and all that kind of stuff. Because at some point, they will need to use those tools to make them successful in a one-on-one offensive situation. And by the same token, uh, I've been, you know, getting trying to get across to the coaches the importance of proper stick checking techniques, puck protection techniques balance, breaking stride, so that in a defensive mode, you can stop the player who's trying to put it between your skates and skate around you. You can actually poke check the puck or lift their stick and sweep it or whatever. Until you give them those foundational tools, then the girls, well, any kid, girls, boys, uh, will not have the confidence to try the one-on-one stuff. I think in a lot of, and it's an educated purely anecdotal guess here, but I think a lot of coaches don't want to do much one-on-one stuff because the kids are not confident or capable or competent to successfully uh, attack or defend. It's like taking a grade six kid and saying, I want you to read this paper by Igor Andrejkovic and see if you can make sense out of it. When us university people go, I'm not sure I understand what he's trying to say. They can read the words. They can read what, you know, the word situation. They can read that. They just don't know how how to work it. Know what I mean? Yeah, I know. I understand. And I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I was just, I was laughing. I had to turn my mic off. Um, exactly <laughs> what you said, like 100%. Uh, but I think as coaches, it's our responsibility to be aware of what's what's comprised in a game, what are the situations that happen. We need to, instead of being sheep-like and just following a manual somewhere, we need to start to dig down inside and ask ourselves questions. Well, why? Why does it say to do this? Is there other ways to do it? What are, is there a better way to do it? What are other best practices? Let's let's look around and see. Like, and not and I don't mean that to steal drills. Like anybody can do that. I'm saying, what's my own personal understanding of the game? What what happens the most in the game? Should I not train for the realities of a game? And as a, you know, looking at Igor's work, at least this provides a, a backbone and a, stru- a skeleton structure outline of here's 
in Igor's world at the time, this is what was meaningful at his level. And he's broken it down. He's provided a, I think, a very useful roadmap for other coaches, a recipe book, if you will. Now it's up to each coach to find this recipe, become aware of it. So hopefully in their show notes, you'll put a, a link in somewhere to Igor's, the title and maybe a PDF file. And they can look for themselves to try to, you know, and it's, it's a difficult read. You're going to have to go through it and, and, and figure oh, yeah. it out for yourself. But it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a it's a painful read, Dean. Oh, I know. <laughs> and it's that like academic work and, again, the literal translation of language. But even if a coach would read the abstract, like the little paragraph at the start. Yes, at the beginning, yes. The conclusion, the conclusion is like three or four paragraphs at the end. And right. I think there's a couple of tables in there that kind of break out yes. the uh, percentages. I mean, even if you spend three minutes, you don't read the whole article, you can get the gist of it. And if you want to learn deeper, then you start to read the article and you might have to read a few times over the course of a couple of days. But, you know, to take a half an hour and read it once. What do you think? How does that relate to your own practice? How can you take this information to make yourself a better coach? a smarter coach, understand the game better, and then provide those opportunities for your kids. So, you know, even if there is a margin of error here of, you know, 10, 15%, if 80% of the game is played one against one or two against one, uh, and, you know, I have coaches talking all, all the time about developing power play, never mind the lines, but developing power play. Well, power play is basically creating a two against one, outnumbering your opposition around the puck. That's it. So if one third of the game, Power play or even strength is being able to outnumber your opposition around the puck two against one. Shouldn't you be spending time not on power play, but on the principle of offensive support, me and you against, you know, player X over here, and we have to outnumber you around the puck. So uh, I, I find that uh, while it's easy to be critical of how he went about determining what constitutes being around the puck or not being around the puck, you know, by stick length or I'm not sure what. To say that 90% of the game or 80% of the game or 75% of a hockey practice and an 80-minute practice, we're saying that, you know, 60 minutes at an 80-minute kids hockey practice should be spent in groups of three or less in order for them to achieve the kinds of success they need to apply directly to a game. The practice to game connection is absolutely essential. It's foundational. And to not spend time doing that seems to be completely counterproductive. So whatever skills or, or tools or tactics the kids had coming into the season will not improve except marginally because they're in better shape or do the odd good thing by the end of the season, because they're still working in groups of four, five, six, seven, and sometimes more. When they're working in those large groups, you really should videotape your own practice and look at it and ask yourself in these large groups of four, five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 players doing, performing like circus dogs <clears throat> in your drill or your activity. How many are truly involved in the drill? I mean, it goes back to George Kingston's work in the um, early 70s, I believe, when he looked at um, puck possession and time on uh, tape. Like how, how long in a practice or a game do minor hockey players have the puck on their tape? Oh, how, many sure. how many passes do they execute in a practice? In a typical practice what about in a game right and, and george took a couple and he took at least one sabbatical maybe two and he went overseas and he he went to russia he went to some of these other countries again i, I don't the details are fuzzy because i i haven't looked at his work for a long time but he was one of the biggest impacts that i had as a young person coming up and we talked about this a little on another podcast the importance of canadian college and university coaches kind of in the the big picture of hockey for Canada and internationally and the influence that they had. And George was one of those progressive thinkers in the day. And he was studying this stuff. And there's been replications from some of this work 
uh, you know, and I think I think it could have even really influenced USA Hockey's look at you know the size mm-hmm. and age appropriateness stuff that they right. did because um, so, the technology wasn't there in the seventies to do what USA Hockey did. Exactly, and I mean George was strictly you know recording it on video and then looking at it after the fact and well where right. was the video camera position like I don't know right. I didn't see the footage but uh, I'm hoping it's a wide angle but a coach today should look at their own practice like videotape set it for hot for wide or have somebody actually videotape and, and as you said at the start today's NHL games are fairly focused on the puck and the immediate area and a lot of people myself included knew we're looking ahead of the puck or behind the puck like what's what's off the puck not in the direct area of the puck like what Igor's study is about because it also it helps us paint a more fulsome picture about um, game sense and hockey awareness of the players away from the puck as well and so that's why for me I like a live game because then I, I can choose what to look at my point of view is not limited by the camera but a coach today can get a videotape to their practice and then look like is, is a four-on-four four truly effective use of time when it comes to players three through eight? Is, is the play around players one through three primarily or one and two? You know, like where the puck is and the players in the immediate vicinity, is it more of a meaningful impact on what they do or don't do or what they're capable of or not capable of and the rest of the players are window dressing, skating around hoping like- to get a puck? Because, and, and the other players could be providing support of some sort, but is it effective support? Can your player at your age level and skill be head up and see and have an awareness, a Gretzky-like awareness of these other players and then thread that pass so they're truly an option? Because I don't think they can. Well, I, I call it active support versus inactive support. So if you're doing, uh, uh, you know, four against four, rushes with back checkers and up and down the rink kind of thing. You will have some players who could provide active support. I'm going down the boards. There's a kid coming in behind me to support me and I can drop it back. That's active support. But the player on the other side of the rink who I can't even see because there's four kids in between us, that's not even support. It's inactive support. Yes, they're in the same time zone, but they are serving no real purpose unless I, you know, rim it chip it into the opposite corner. I, I heard tell of a, of a practice that, that uh, in minor hockey, not too long ago, it was a boys practice. It was, I think it was U14 or U15 or something where um, clearly the coach doesn't get it, but here's what he did. He ran a bunch of drills in a practice. I'm not sure whether it was a 50, 60, 80 minute practice, ran a bunch of drills that involved pass. If, if the kids missed the pass, the, I'm not sure if it was the kid who missed the pass or the passer who missed it or the whole team who missed it had to do two laps around the rink. So there were like three or four completed passes in the entire practice. So the kids spent a good portion of the practice skating around the rink. Now that, that to me strike, that strikes me as being just basically, well, stupid. Because it's really important that the coaches understand that the number of passes that are missed and the transitions, as I mentioned earlier, hundreds in a game, that's part of the game. That's the fluidity of the game. So my passing to you, Dean, you know, we go down the rink two on O. That's okay. Pass back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We'll try five and we'll miss one. 80% 80% success rate, pretty good. Next time we go, let's see if we can get five out of five, you know, that type of thing. But it's two players. It's just two. Saying that the missed pass is going to result in two laps or one lap or five push-ups or anything is just dumb. It's completely counterproductive. So I guess the message that we're trying to say here, Dean, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're on the same page, is let's keep our practice exercises, activities, small area games, whatever we're using, to really small groups, allow them to fail, allow them to succeed, but keep it in a in a in an area of the rink and in a number of players that is similar to what happens in a game. 
We're not practicing 100%. every day like a junior. It's not like a junior A team or college team. Like when I was at Concordia, we're on the ice four times a week, five times a week. In junior A in, in Montreal, we practiced every day. Not successfully, but we practiced every day. We didn't get better because of the a number of other circumstances, but we practiced every day. We perfected our mistakes every day. I agree. I think um, the thing there is when you look at the when you look at a typical minor hockey practice and the preponderance of drills that are used in the setting that you've described, if somebody makes a mistake, what happens? And typically what happens is the coach will blow it down or he'll yell, you're done or stop or next. And those players never get a chance to recover their mistake. Right. The game of hockey, not the practice of hockey, the game of hockey is a series of ongoing mistakes. Mistakes yes. typically evolve into transitions and out of transitions. We made missed a pass, we had possession, we miss a pass, we're on offense, uh, now we're not. And we may not be on defense yet because there's three situations. There's when we're on offense, when we're on defense, and then when nobody's on offense or defense because nobody has possession. So there's that in between time as well, right? Like a Tom Roy right. in his hockey coaching ABCs refers to it as a zero one two situation. So mm -hmm. you're either in possession, on defense, or neither because it's not yet determined. But if the puck's closer to the other team, even though they don't have possession, you need to anticipate my team is now going to be on defense and that team's going to be on offense, and you've got to start to make decisions and choices to align yourselves appropriately to provide now defensive support. So I think that the use of activities and, and games in practice, using Igor's research around the numbers of people involved, but putting it into an activity or a game when there is a mistake made on a one-on-one, -on -one, that doesn't mean if the offense misses the puck or misses a shot, or the defense screws up and the offense goes around or the defense gets it and now is on offense. What it means is when there's a mistake made, the play doesn't end. The players have a chance to recover from their mistake and try to make up for it. Now, is that a back check? Is that a forward check? Is that an attack? Is that a, what is it? I don't know, it depends on the situation, but give the players a chance to potentially recover from their mistake and make another mistake and learn from that as that play goes on rather than boom done get to the end of the line hang your head in shame sit on the bench wait for five minutes and now you get another rep and that's where I think the use of more activities and games in practice and situationally reflecting Igor's work is going to be of most benefit to the player to become a better thinker and hopefully realize what shortcomings and strengths they have and then continue to work on those, as well as then to the team as a whole, because if they're used to responding now to the more frequently occurring situations in hockey and starting to develop a repertoire to deal with those successfully, the success of the team is gonna get better. Therefore, the coach is gonna look like they know what they're doing. So it's gonna benefit everybody. Uh, I, I regularly have seen, in every association I've seen, you know, in three different cities, uh, people doing drills or smaller games with you know four on four three on three five on three uh three on two drills and you know like i said at the outset with all the transitions that take place in the game and using the research here certainly i came to when i when you gave me this information a few years ago i think uh, about this study um i've come to look at how we what we do in practice much differently and when i watch coaches doing drills like three on two reverse in the neutral zone which seems to be a favorite uh, you know, you, you break out, you get a pass from your D, all five of you leave the zone, you pass to D at the far blue line, so they're the other team, you're giving it to the other team, they give it back to you, you go in three on two on the, on the defenseman you just broke out with, none of that happens in a real game, none of that is realistic, none of that involves one-on-one -on -one issues, none of that involves any kind of real opposition, none of it makes any sense. And coaches stopping it after you know two reps, blowing them say, you gotta go here, you gotta go here, you gotta go here. It doesn't happen in hockey. 
The game is fluid. It doesn't happen. Uncommon sense, Richard. Um, and that's the, the thing. And, and I think that human nature being what it is, we, we tend to do what's easiest and laziest. And we, we look for the, the drill manual. We look for the um, season in a, in, a, in a binder. Here's my, here's my yearly plan. Please do it for me. I'll try and deliver it the best I can. And right. if you're gonna do, if you're gonna do the best that you can, you take that binder and heave it out the window and recycle it, whatever. Um, you can certainly take parts of it, and uh, but I think you have to customize it. And I have to. I think you have to look deeper into the game itself and some of these uh, other sports, other papers, other sources, and really come to some of these conclusions yourself. You and I know we can go into any situation. Change is hard. People are resistant. Not everybody's open-minded. And we have to either um, beg, borrow, steal, cajole, influence subtly, directly. There's all kinds of ways. But I think that's what our mission is here through this podcast too and through the work we both do individually. Mm. We're trying to make, we're trying to educate people not necessarily to be how you coach and how I coach, but we're trying Hopefully to educate not. people <laughs> to become better um, in mm. what they currently are doing and to be open-minded and, and listen to some ideas that other people have and try them right. for themselves, give them a fair shake. And I mean, yeah, great if we had a bunch of our little clones running around, but that's not the intent. The intent here is to develop a more informed coach because at the end of the day, it's not about you as a coach or, or the people listening, the people out there coaching. It's about what environment are you putting in front of the kids so that they're going to have fun, learn, return, and they're going to have a, a, a bloody good time doing it and they're going to want to come back. I, I would say that um, the two things that have struck me as most influential to my approach to coaching and teaching coaches over the last 15 years have been the, uh, the use of small area games to, as, a, as a teaching tool, uh, such as what you've advocated so many times on this podcast, as well as in person. And the, this piece of research from Slovakian coach Igor Andrejkovic, you know, those, two, those two things I think have been the greatest influence on me, aside from you know learning about culture and, and learning about how to develop a better culture and organization, leadership, all that kind of stuff. But in terms of uh, improving the lot of coaches and what they do with their kids, you educate the coaches, you make the kids better. Those two things. Th this document, even though we could you know look at it with with a through a different lens, a more critical lens, 80, 75, 70, two thirds. Two thirds, if two thirds of the game is, you know, one versus two, two versus one, and one versus one. So margin of error of nearly 30%. Even if it's two thirds in a 50 minute practice, we're saying 35 minutes of your practice has to be on groups of twos and threes. And the kids will be better for it. 100%. Well, and I hope that, like you say, if you throw a link to this piece of research in the um, show notes, um, yep. you know, on. And I know you welcome any comments back, you know, it'd be, sure. it'd be really cool if people, you know, dropped you a line and said, can I learn more, or, you know, have specific mm -hmm. questions even about this. And I think that what you just said, the, um, when you reflect back on your own development, and I mean, I could do the same. I mentioned George Kingston's work back in the day when yeah. I was uh, yeah. in high yeah. school and I'd heard about this, you know, uh, I mean, certainly George had a really big um, role in my open-mindedness to look at other different new ways to look at the game. Um, you know, I mentioned John the Columbian. I mean, there's been lots of people in my journey too that have been very influential. Yeah. And I think that sure. rather than seeking out in, um, in material and um, people that are exactly the same as us and sync with us, um, but maybe challenge our beliefs, um, I think those are important conversations to be had like we're not just looking to try to add to what we already know. My journey here that I was relating here about Igor's work and what I've been doing through adopting more of these approaches and trying to use them in, in like the ratios in my practice to put those situations into, into, into play. 
it, I, I was just like everybody else, Richard. I was like a drill and skill guy. And you, first you start static yes. and then you start to move. Absolutely. And it's always unopposed mm -hmm. and we're doing drills. And I've mentioned a drill of the month club on the fax machine back in the day. And I was a big proponent. I had a guy actually say, and I've known him since the early 90s. And he, he sent me a text after I sent him that one podcast. And he said, Dean, I remember when you were coaching the national team, um, and he said, I think it was in 98 when you were going to world championships, you learned so many cool drills from um, tactical drills from in 95, I was with Tom Rennie, in 98 I was with Andy Murray. And he said, I know you told me for a fact, and this guy's got a good memory. I don't doubt his memory at all. And he said, you were learning so much from tactical drills from these guys at Hockey Canada. And I, 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 I never did respond directly to him, but in my mind, I thought, I know, and I did, and I, it was amazing, and I was grateful for those experiences, and each one of them brought something different to the table, and I learned, and I took some stuff away from their leadership style and their knowledge, their technical, tactical knowledge, but at that time, I wasn't aware of these small area games. I wasn't aware of a lot of stuff, so you and I talked off camera before it started about perspective, um, cultural differences, travel, um, seeing things through other perspectives. I didn't seek out information and people to confirm my already held beliefs and values. I was an op more of an open book. And as I was presented with stuff that was contradictory to that, I pushed back. I pushed back on John the Columbian for years when I met him in 03. Why are you talking so much before games? Why are you talking so much on the bench? Why are you doing drills? Why are you not keeping score? Why are you not holding the, the people accountable? Why, why, why? You know, John, shut the F up. I'm getting tired of you. You're challenging me. In my mind, I was thinking that, but I continued to listen. And it ate away at me. And he, he ground me down over time. And it wasn't just John, but I, I was working directly with him for a couple of years at, at the university level. And on the women's side and then the men's side. And then even in minor hockey. And our association continues to this day. And I learned so much from him and other people like him that challenged my previously held beliefs, people that had a broader awareness of the world and sport and leadership and whatever other factors are out there. And over time, you know, you listen to these things and I think, I think uh, people can evolve and we can build capacity within ourselves. And so I think that's the message of this podcast. And that's the message of this 90% factor is, is, you know, listen hopefully you give it a chance we're not here to bang bang you on the head with a gavel but we are hoping that you're going to challenge yourself and try and make your environment better for the kids that you're trying to serve because at the end of the day it's about the kids on that note dino let's bring this one to a close uh if uh, listeners want to contact me if you want to get a little bit more information from Dean, I will flip you, I will flip him your email address if you email me, Richard at grassrootsminorhockey.com. Okay, Don is saying thank Dean is saying thank you very much. And uh, I thank you for listening to this show, The 90% Factor. It's based on the paper by uh, Slovakian coach Igor Andrejkovic. 90% of our hockey games involve three players or less. Keep that in mind next time you set up your practices. Thanks for listening. Dean, thanks for being on the show again. I'm uh, getting thumbs up and turn on your mic there for a second. Say thank you, everybody. Thank, thank you, Richard. Thank you, everybody. Be, a, be one of those 90% <laughs> and actually do it. Okay, great. Thank you, everyone. And thanks for listening. And we'll see you somewhere in a ring. Bye.